Welcome to the podcast of Christ Church in Town in Jacksonville, Florida. We are seeking the renewal of all things in Jesus Christ. Towards that end, we are committed to cultivating personal transformation in Christ, an uncommon fellowship of racially and economically diverse individuals, and the flourishing of our neighbors. To join our local body in membership or financial support, visit ChristChurchInTown.org. The next reading is taken from Luke chapter 1, verses 68 through 79. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us. In the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us, that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Amen. Well, if you have uh, been with us through the season of Advent, you know that uh, over these past few weeks, we've been looking at uh, the one that Israel uh, had spent so long, hundreds of years, thousands of years, waiting for to come and to bring healing and righteousness and life to them. We said that they were waiting for uh, a long-expected prophet who would communicate God's character and his will to them, that they were waiting on a true priest who would bring them into the presence of God by his mercy. And uh, as we're going to see tonight, they were waiting for a true king, for a king who would come to bring righteousness and justice and wholeness into their lives and into a broken world. And that's really what uh, Zechariah's song, this last scripture passage that we looked at from Luke 1 is all about, this joyful welcoming of the long-expected king who came to uh, defeat the enemies that we face, who came to bring victory, who came to bring righteousness into the world. Christmas Eve is one of my favorite services that we do throughout the year. It's the last service uh, in our Advent season, right? So it's, uh, it's right at the, the transition point between Advent, a season of longing, of expectation, a season where we acknowledge the darkness and the brokenness of this world waiting for the joy of Christmas, the joy of the visitation of God to earth. And Christmas Eve is right there at that moment of anticipation, right there at that moment uh, when light sparks out in the darkness. 
And I love this service uh, because I think, honestly, that's where uh, we live our lives as Christians. It's where we live our lives is in that barrier between darkness and light. We live acknowledging that we live in a broken and at times dark world, but at the same time acknowledging that darkness doesn't have the last word, that the darkness uh, doesn't ultimately consume the light, but that light is coming. If we're unwilling uh, to honestly name and confront the darkness of this world, then we'll never receive the true joy and gladness of Christmas. Right? You'll never understand why the coming of Jesus is indeed joy for the entire world unless you look head on into the darkness of this world. Living our lives is oftentimes, if you've ever been sitting uh, in the shade of a tree, right, under the darkness of its shade, but with light kind of coming in, streaming in through the leaves, dancing on the ground, that's where we live our lives in this world somewhat shaded by darkness and yet beginning to see glimpses of light coming in. Fleming Rutledge, uh, in her wonderful little book on Advent, says this. She says, to be a Christian is to live every day of our lives in solidarity with those who sit in the darkness and in the shadow of death, but to live in the unshakable hope of those who expect the dawn. It's to live between darkness and hope. And so tonight is a service of anticipation. You know, some of my most vivid memories as a kid of Christmas are not moments of the, the, you know, rabid joy of opening presents and eating dessert and all that. It's in those moments of anticipation. I remember sitting in my room and my parents, uh, probably loaded with some kind of threat, saying, listen, you can't come out until 6 a.m., Right, Just waking up at whatever ungodly hour I woke up in my youthful excitement and just watching the minutes crawl by, waiting for it to come. I remember being a kid and sitting in a church service, not unlike this one, right? And you're there, it's Christmas Eve, you're in the service, but what you really want is all still to come. It's all, if I'm honest, in the next morning. And so it's a time of anticipation where we live our lives with hope, with longing, And we all live with longing, don't we? We long for our lives to improve. We long to be free of our addictions, for our suffering to end, for our world to be more just, for our relationships to heal. In our best moments, we live in hope. And in our worst, we give in sometimes to cynicism, feeling like those things we long for may never come. In Zechariah, the man who wrote uh, this song that we read in Luke 1, Old Zechariah is a man who knew something about longing and expectation. He was uh, John the Baptist's dad. He was, uh, by the time we get to know him at the beginning of the gospel, he was by this time a very old man. He had lived his life uh, with the vocation of a priest who made sacrifices in the temple. And so he knew what it was to long for something and to wonder if it was going to come to pass. Right? As a priest, he did his work in the temple, a place where uh, in the stories of the Old Testament, God's spirit, his presence dwelt so thickly and vividly that they could see it. But then at the exile, we have that tragic story in Ezekiel when God's presence leaves the temple. And so, uh, so Zechariah went about his work, went about his work in the temple with this sense of longing, 
that he was doing his work, he was making his sacrifices, but it wasn't what it had been. That God's spirit, his presence, his glory wasn't there in the way that it had been for his grandfathers and his great-grandfathers. He also knew what it was to long in his personal life. Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth were by this time quite old. They were towards the end of their life. And their entire life had hoped for children but never had them. And so well into their old age, they found themselves still longing for children that never came. In fact, in that long waiting, Zechariah gave up all hope of ever having any children. Right? He gave up. You can, you can almost hear his voice worn down as you read the stories. In those days, uh, to be childless was not uh, simply viewed as some type of medical issue. It was largely and usually believed to also have something to do with moral corruption or sin on behalf of those who are without children. And so over time, he was so worn down that when the, when the angel Gabriel appeared to him in the temple and told him that he and Elizabeth were going to have a child in their old age, Zechariah said, no, no, there must be some kind of mistake. Uh, you must mean one of the other Zechariahs because we're far too old to ever have children. We've thrown up prayers in the middle of the night and we've known over decades now that they don't get answered. You must have somebody else in mind. And Gabriel said, no, it's you. And uh, to prove the power of God, until the baby comes, you're going to be struck dumb. You're not going to be able to speak for nine months while the baby John grows in your wife's womb. And so Zechariah knows what it was to wait. He knew what it was to give up hope. And then I love just the idea of Zechariah not able to speak. This man who was a he was a priest. You know, a lot of us clergy folks, we like to talk. Uh, and Zechariah went nine months without him being able to preach a sermon or talk at all or talk to his wife or tell anybody what he had just seen. Struggling to find any hope. And then over the course of nine months, watching his wife's belly grow, watching the baby grow within her, watching God uh, work this miracle in his life and in Elizabeth's life, he had nine months for his hopelessness, his cynicism, to be, to be worn away by this growing, visible, tangible sign of hope. And when Zechariah is finally able to speak, these words are what he says. They ask him what he'd like to name the baby, or would you like to name him Zechariah Jr.? And he says, no, his name is going to be John. God told me to name him John. And then when he can finally speak, he bursts out in this song of joy, right? I imagine, you know, this doesn't seem like a song that somebody had composed on the spot. Maybe you've been thinking about it for nine months. You know what? Once I can speak, I'm going to start with blessed be the God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Zechariah breaks his silence with a song of praise. And in this song, all of us who struggle to believe the good news, all of us who struggle uh, to be overwhelmed by the sense of joy that comes into the world, we can find reason for joy. His song basically boils down uh, into one thing. His, the reason for his joy is that the king has come to rescue us into his service, his service of bringing the light and peace of his kingdom into the world. The king has come to rescue us into his service, his service of bringing 
his kingdom, light and peace into the world. The first thing he celebrates is that the king has come to rescue him and the whole world. Look at what he says in verses 71 through 74. He says that we should be saved from our enemies, from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. He tells us in verse 69 that he has raised up a horn of salvation from us, for us in the house of his servant David. That idea, the, the notion of a horn of salvation, a horn was a symbol of strength. Think about most of the animals that have horns. You're thinking of uh, bulls and powerful animals. And so in the Old Testament, this becomes a symbol for strength. That he's raised up something strong from the throne of David, from the king of Israel, from the, from the line of David. Essentially saying that God has brought a king who will be the rescuer, the redeemer that we've longed for, who will throw off our enemies and bring us into freedom and righteousness. Now, Israel, over the, life, over the life of Israel, if you read the Old Testament, Israel had a complicated relationship with kingship, with the kings of this world. Right? When we, when, when we meet Israel, they're under the dominance of a foreign king. Right? They're living under slavery uh, to Pharaoh in Egypt, and he was just the first of many kings who would, live, who would dominate over them. So they knew what it was to be dominated by powerful kings, to be enslaved by those in power. And then there's this period, they, they, they leave Israel, I mean, they leave Egypt, they go into the promised land, and there's a period where they're living in the land and they don't have a king. That's told in the Old Testament uh, book of Judges. And Judges is maybe one of the darkest books of the Old Testament. Uh, without a king, there's absolute chaos in Israel. There's violence, uh, there's abuse, there's a lack of justice, the poor are oppressed, their enemies come from the outside and take what they want. It's a time of moral and governmental chaos in Israel. The refrain of judges over and over again is in those days Israel had no king and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Right, there's a part of us, right, as rugged individualists that we are that like the sound of there being no king. Right, I think, yeah, you know what? If everybody was free to do whatever we wanted, if everybody was free to make up their own mind on right and wrong, then everything would go great. And Judges actually says, ah, no, no. <laughs> if everybody got their own way, if everybody got to do their own thing, if there was no king and everybody was making up their own mind about what is right and what is wrong, the powerful abused the weak, the strong nations oppressed the weak nations, that sin runs rampant because what's in us when given free expression uh, is not necessarily for the good. And so Israel cries out and they ask God to give them a king. And that's what the, the rest of the story of Old Testament Israel was, is them being given a king, first Saul, then David, then Solomon, then all of their children. So Israel knew dominance under a bad king. They knew chaos under no king. And then they get their own king. And for, for about three quarters of one king, it works okay. They, they get about three quarters of a good king. Uh, David, for most of his life, things are going pretty well. He's a man after God's own heart. He leads them to military victory. He leads them in the, uh, their vision of building a palace and eventually building a temple. But even David, even the best human king, 
eventually does what most human kings do. He took a woman who wasn't his wife using his power. He then sent her husband into his death to take what he wanted. And then the rest of the kings kind of go downhill from there. And so they knew chaos of no king. And then when they finally get a king, they know mostly corruption. Right, Kings who promise to do the right thing, but then end up living for themselves, seeking their own wealth, seeking their own power. And so they, like all of humanity, is stuck somewhat between a rock and a hard place. If we don't have a king, there's no justice. There's no protection. There's no righteousness. But if we do have a king, if we do have people with power to order the world, then sometimes we see corruption and we see abuse. Right, So we need authority, we need rule, but every human ruler falls short. Every human king or dictator or president or member of parliament or anybody, all human rulers fall short at a basic level. And so they live longing for a true king. And what Zechariah acknowledges here is that God has done for them and God is doing for them what no human ruler could do. Because watch what Zechariah says. He says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. He has raised up for us a king. What he's saying is this one who's to be born is both the king and the very visitation of God himself. That he's not just a king like the other kings. He's not just a king who would make promises of doing what's right. But he was God coming finally to be king. God coming to make everything right. God coming to bring righteousness and justice. Jesus comes as our king. Our confessional, one of our confessional uh, documents that we use as a church as we ask questions about what we believe is the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And this is the way the catechism answers this question. How does Christ execute the office of a king? Right, in what way is Jesus a king? Christ executes the office of a king, we learn, in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all of his and our enemies. He comes and he fights our enemies on our behalf. He fights enemies that were so powerful we could not overtake them. He comes not just to fight Israel's enemies like the Romans and the Greeks and the Persians and the Egyptians, but he comes to fight the enemies that rule over all of humanity, the enemies of sin and death and misery and shame, right? He comes to take on those enemies that every human being is powerless before. The baby born in a manger that day is the visitation of God coming as king, to fight and to win victory over all of our enemies. I don't know what it is in your life that you know yourself to be powerless against. I hope that it's something, right? It's a terrible feeling to be powerless, but it may be worse to naively believe that there's nothing in this life that you're powerless against, right? We're all powerless in the face of mortality. Right? All of us get sick. All of us die. We're all powerless, if we're honest, against the darkest forces inside of ourselves. Right? All of us have appetites. We have ego. We have sin, the word the scriptures give it. 
that we cannot fix in and of ourselves. We've all made, maybe in a, in a week or two from now, you will make again New Year's resolutions for how you're going to work harder, try better, do more. And those usually last until about January 7th or 8th. Right? Our best efforts to change our own lives, to master our own hearts, we're powerless against the darkness on the outside of us and the darkness on the inside of us. And so that's why Zechariah celebrates when he says that he has come, he has remembered his covenant. He's come to deliver us from the hand of our enemies, to defeat the enemies that we're powerless against so that we, in trusting him, might find life. But there's more than just being saved from our enemies that Zechariah celebrates here. He also saves us, not just from our enemies, not just from sin and death, but he saves us for something, right? Oftentimes, uh, as Christians, we talk about all that God saves us from, right? In his mercy, he saves us from judgment, he saves us from sin, he saves us from death. But he doesn't just save us from, he saves us for something, he saves us for a better life, a life of fullness and joy in relationship. The way that Zechariah puts it is he saves us for a life of service to our king. Look at what he says uh, here in verse 74 and 75. That we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. We're, the rescuer, the king comes to save us from ourselves, to save us from our sin and the judgment of God, and to save us for a life of service to the king. Right? He comes and he enlists us into his service to live our lives, we're told, with holiness, no longer worried about, does God love me? Does God accept me? Am I good enough for God? but washed and made clean, holy before God. Righteousness, teaching us to live our lives rightly and justly before him. And he calls us into a service, I love this phrase, that we might serve him without fear. You know, uh, there's one thing that's true of most kings everywhere in the earth, which is that when push comes to shove, their people serve them with at least a little bit of fear. Right? I'll, Speak for myself, I don't always drive 55 on the highway because I think it's a good idea. I don't always drive 55 because I think it's the safest option. No, I fear that somebody with shiny lights is going to pull up behind me and pull me over and charge me a whole bunch of money if I go too fast. Right? That ultimately, uh, kings hope that we comply because it's the right thing to do, but in a pinch, fear will do just fine. Right? Most of us obey not out of joy, not out of desire, but out of fear. Maybe, uh, you know, I think it's probably also true that most people in religion obey for the same reasons. Right? I know that there was some part of that that was the version of Christianity that I picked up along the way, that you do the right thing, right? You, you keep the Ten Commandments so that God won't punish you. And what Zechariah is saying is that the king has come to open up a new way, right? So that we can serve him not out of fear, 
right? Because once he's defeated our sin, taken away our guilt, made us right with God, made us holy and righteous, brothers and sisters, there's nothing left to fear, right? He's already told us that we are accepted and loved and delighted in by God. And so when Jesus tells his followers to come and follow me, when he enlists us into his service, it's, it's one that's motivated out of love, motivated out of gratitude, out of joy, that we might serve him in this life of meaning and purpose and love, holiness and righteousness, in a freedom that knows no fear. And then he tells us what this service looks like, that it's to bring, to, to make visible his kingdom of light and peace. Look at what he says. So he starts talking, he goes from talking about the king who's coming to talking about his son, John the Baptist. You, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, and you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death and to guide our feet into the way of peace. Look, he's saying because the king has come, the kingdom is coming, right? Jesus, the king, is bringing in his reign, his reign that we pray for. If you come to our church every single Sunday, we pray the Lord's Prayer. And in that prayer, we pray what? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, that, that the king comes so that his will his ways are just as fully done on earth as they are in heaven. And that he comes in his first advent, his first coming to begin that. And then he continues that through all those who call the king the king. Through all of those who turn in faith towards Jesus, who look to him for mercy, forgiveness from sin and its penalty, who follow him into service in his kingdom. He's bringing his kingdom in and through us bringing light where there's been darkness, bringing peace where there's been strife. Friends, this year has been one where we know something, don't we, about darkness and strife, right? We know uh, maybe over these last couple of years more clearly than we ever have that we do live not in a world of peace, but in a world of violence, in a world of conflict, not in a world of pure light, but a world in which darkness still comes. Christmas is an invitation to us. It's an invitation to us to order our lives, to fill our days, not with dread over what the world's coming to, but in joy over the one who's come into the world. Right? Not over the daily spin cycle of, of this week's news, but in the good news of great joy and glad tidings to all people. That as we orient our lives around the one born in the manger, the one who calls us to follow him, we can find what Paul calls a peace that surpasses understanding. We can find a light that penetrates the darkness of our lives and of our city and of our world. That's what we celebrate. We do this tradition in our church and in millions of churches around the country and around the world uh, at the end of this service where we take a light uh, lit by the Christ candle at the center of the Advent wreath. And then we spread that light uh, from seat to seat as we sing Silent Night. And that is, I mean, 
Quite a, you can be honest, you would be a little disappointed if you left here and we didn't do the thing with the candles and the silent night, right? It's, it's, it's the, the culmination of a, of a Christmas Eve service. But it's not just a quaint symbol or, or mere nostalgia or, or anything like that. It's a visible symbol of what we just said, that the light has dawned, that the light from on high is shown in us and it's shining through us out into the world. Before we do that, I'll end with this poem. This is uh, from the great uh, early 20th century uh, theologian, Howard Thurman. He was, uh, Howard Thurman was uh, a lot of the theological inspiration uh, behind the early civil rights movement. And he was also from Daytona and came to Jacksonville a lot. So it's a little bit of North Florida history for you. And unlike all theologians, uh, we're not all poets, but this one was. And so this is his Christmas poem. When the song of the angels is stilled, and when the star in the sky is gone, when the kings and the princes are home, and when the shepherds are back with their flock, then the work of Christmas begins, to find the lost, to heal the broken, to feed the hungry, to release the prisoner, to rebuild the nations, to bring peace among others, and to make music in the heart. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that uh, in Bethlehem that day, the sunrise from on high began to dawn in this dark world. Lord, that the light of your forgiveness came to us who are guilty and condemned, that you came offering forgiveness of sins, that the light of your grace came to those of us who live so much by law, that the light of your justice came to those of us who know the pain of injustice. Lord, that the light of your love came to those of us who've known so much addiction to ourselves. The light of your peace came into a world torn by conflict. Lord Jesus, we thank you that uh, the light has shone on those of us who live in darkness, that we have seen a great light. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your coming. We long for your return, Lord Jesus. Lord, we are aware that we still hope for so much, so much more healing and righteousness and peace. And so, Lord, we long and we hope. Lord Jesus, our prayer for our lives, our prayers for this church, is that you would so fill us with the joy of your gospel, the joy of your good news, that we would be carriers and heralds of your joy to the world. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Christ Church in town, please visit our website at ChristChurchInTown.org.